what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Pat. New year. New you. New ads. (laughs) (laughs) It's time for new ads. It is time for new ads. We've had a wonderful year of sponsorship by our four wonderful people that carried us throughout the year. Truly, the sponsorship that comes from these guys, Jason Furman, Mine's a wiener dog quip. <laughs> Jason was the first person to reach out, like episode one. Hey, I want to sponsor the show. We're yep. like, fuck off, mate. Then he- <laughs> <laughs> several months later, we're like, uh, we could do some of that money now, yep. Jason. So we apologize. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank mm. you so much. Mm. But truly, where I get all my dog-related items mm-hmm. is Einswick dog quip. And amazing hoodies. Yeah. No, I do have a really good hoodie from Jason. Yeah, I've got a great hoodie from Jason yeah. as well. But I continue to get all my stuff. When I need dog training gear, Jason's my first point of call. Yep. I just bought a meal off him again. for Another meal? Yeah, for my sister. Yep. I'm going to do some little meal content. He is incredibly generous and very supportive to the industry. He is. And doing amazing work on his weight loss as well. So go, Jason. His problem, though, is doesn't ship to the US. Oh, what an absolute turd burglar. Step in. Macla Point. Macla Point. Oh, are you talking Mark with a C? Carkla Point? <laughs> Canine Dynamics. Yes. He's in Canada. Yeah. He's well, he does service the whole world, but just stay out of Jason territory, fucking Macla Point. Ooh, North America. Who do you reckon would win between them? Mark's a cop. He has a gun. Yep. Jason has guns. Yep. I don't know. It'd be an interesting battle. If we can organize it. Let's do an MMA match between Kakla Point and <laughs> Furman. <laughs> Not really. Love them both. So if you're in North America and you want some dog gear, yep. Canon Dynamics, that's a place to get it. Yes, absolutely. Great range, really good website, very intuitive. It makes life so easy to order product. Yep. You know who else has been supporting the show for a long, long time? That would have to be the lady herself from Ashland, Virginia. Melanie the the train town. Yes, Melanie Benware. Yep. She does these little home school things. Yeah. And I think the reason that our listeners should be getting in contact with her is because they know someone mm. in Ashland, Virginia, that needs their dog homeschooled, or they want to learn about that kind of program themselves. And they, as a trainer, could book a session to get some time with Melanie Benware. And she's been busier than ever, which is great. Yeah. Hopefully, she's got some transactions from the canine paradigm. Yes, hopefully. Mm. You know where you could get. A killer Dutch Shepherd or German Shepherd? That would have to be the wonderful people, Patrick and Alicia Lockett from House Amberg. One and the same. Yep. That's them. If I were in Europe, and Europe's the place to get the dogs. Yep. If I were in Germany, that's where I'd go. But Mm. the good news is you don't have to be in Germany. They can ship all over the world. All over the world. Mm. Want yourself a sweet-ass Dutchie? Yep. Talk to them. Or a German Shepherd. I don't know why you'd want a German Shepherd, but if you do... Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. The best ones around will come from them. That's a sponsor killer in itself. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, those guys have supported the show for a long time. Jason from the start, Mark, Mel, and Patrick and Alicia at House Amberg, yep. Shepherds. We really appreciate you guys supporting the show. And good quality people as well, good yep. quality products. Moving forward on that, we only take those sponsorships from those guys because we know them, we trust them, we believe in them. Yep. Going forward into 2022, we know that some of you fucking fast forward these ads. Oof. Not everybody listens to the ads. Absolute disgusting. So we're thinking, we're not, nothing's set in stone, but we're thinking about changing the structure of the ads at the front to yep. give our sponsors better value and maybe just reading one each time and mm-hmm. then bringing more people into the rotation if that's something people are interested in doing. Yes. So stand by for information on that. So if you do want to be a 2022 sponsor and you're happy to continue with us, let us know. We'll be canvassing that shortly. But yep. for those of you who have been supporting us, just like our wonderful listeners, we we'll just want to thank you very, very much. Really appreciate everything you've contributed. All right. We love you. We do. Bye. Goodbye.
welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm at my house and I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook, who's at his house. We were actually supposed to meet each other as we normally try and do. So the quality of the audio is matched. It's not too bad with you being at your house now that you've got some fancy equipment back at your place. Thanks to our Patreon supporters. It all comes down to internet. This is our second attempt today. Yeah. <laughs> internet just dropping out on us. It's a pain in the ass, but what can you do? This mm. is life. This is global pandemic life. Speaking of, that's the reason why we were supposed to actually meet in person yesterday, which would be Saturday and it's Sunday now. However, I had a COVID scare, so I had all the symptoms leading up to it. I was doing the responsible thing and isolating and doing all the rat tests. It turns out I just had a good old-fashioned head cold. Fancy that. Still around. Old school sickness. Old school. Can't believe it. It just rolls up in its old <laughs> Model T, jumps out and harasses you. <laughs> you know what's worse about that joke is we've had to do that twice now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I found it more funny this second time, I have to say. Oh, they're very good. Hopefully the listeners will enjoy it as well. Yeah. So you're okay. Bit of sickness, but turned out not to be the Rona. It's tricky. I think at the moment, you know, it's everywhere. I'm surrounded by it. My bloody neighbors had it. And what's weird is, you know, one person in the house of four gets it. The others didn't. Heaps of people I know get it. And it's just like everybody I know seems to have had reasonably mild illness. I have known a few people that are hospitalized. But it's just the logistics headache, right? Like there's, as they keep saying, the supply chains are interrupted, but people can't just go to work. You got to isolate. And even if you're not that ill, you're really causing a big administrative fuck around, which, you know, has been a huge headache for me. I want to get back to work. I want to keep traveling. I want to keep doing seminars. I got that tiny trip to the States, but now it's even stricter. You need a PCR test within 24 hours of the flight there, and you can't get a result of a PCR test within five days here at the moment. So that the chances of being able to get one to board a plane in time. I also am hearing that about a third of flights are getting canceled because they can't staff them. So yeah, it's tricky, man. It's just a fuck around, but we're all living through it. Yeah, it is tricky. It's a logistics nightmare for a lot of people. It certainly is for us as well, because we've got young staff that were supposed to work over Christmas that obviously couldn't because they got struck down with it. Anybody who's listening to the show that's involved, like their pets are staying here or you use us, don't worry. We still had staff available, still had quality of care. We still managed to staff the places correctly. It's just that some staff have had to volunteer to work longer than they normally would over that period, which we're very thankful to them for stepping up and stepping in where they were needed to do. Obviously, you know, like within seven days, most people who get it, and especially young people, young fit people are back within seven days after they do their second test and get the all clear, they've come back to work and they've been managed to, you know, just take off where they left off. Primarily, as you said before, most people are just coming back and said, yeah, just cough and a bit of a fever and a bit of a runny nose for three or four days and I'm feeling good again, which is good. I'm glad that that's what people are seeing. So as long as they're healthy and they're able to do their job and it's not affecting them and the people around them and it's not going to infect any other people, that's great. Yeah. It's hard to know. You know, we're not experts on fucking on this shit. It's, it's hard to know, but if this is the variant that can get us out of it, that would be fantastic, but who knows? And maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel coming soon, but certainly right now we're deep in the bucket. We're nowhere near the end of the tunnel. Speaking of this issue, it's leading me into another point that I just want to briefly go over. And that is the reason why I left the ICP. There's been people who have reached out to me. Before you keep going, you haven't left the ISCP, just the board, right? You've just stepped down from the board. Yes, that's important to know is that I've resigned from the board, not left the ISCP overall. Over that time, there have been people on social media that have gingerly reached out to me. Some people have just outright asked me and said, what's happened? Are there problems? Did you leave? All I want to say to everybody listening out there in a nutshell is every board, every committee, every workplace, every family has things going on sometimes, and sometimes it's smooth sailing. There's a good expression um, that I heard that says, you know, the seas aren't always turbulent. Sometimes they're smooth sailing. And that's exactly the same as what it is in committees, boards, organizations, whatever. So yes, there's always something going on. That's just a fact. It didn't make me run away from the organization when there were turbulent times within the board of directors. The real reason behind me needing to leave was in the early days of me joining, we weren't in a COVID apocalypse. I could travel freely. I could be part of the organization and come to the boards. COVID has caused an absolute logistics nightmare, like I said before, in businesses and in things like this. It really prevented me to be able to effectively network. The main reason why I had to leave and step down from the board 
was because when I first joined, I think we were like three or four centers. We're now eight centers. So my professional workload has increased exponentially. As most people know who've been trying to book lessons with me, trying to fit an actual time frame that's not going to impact my regular day job. I've literally had to apologize to people and just say, look, I can't do it. I can't commit to it. Therefore, either recommend somebody else for the job or whatever. And it's literally the same with the ICP board. When I was looking at the amount of work that was required to maintain what the board wanted to do because they were upping their work requirement, the emails were getting bigger, there was more to read, there were more meetings that they wanted the board to attend. I primarily looked at it and thought, largely, I'm going to be ineffective and inefficient to be able to provide that service to the board. I really believe that was the right thing to do to resign myself or fire myself from the position. So Mm. there wasn't anything nefarious going on. There wasn't anything that I was running away from apart from I really believe that the board would have been carrying me and I think it's a responsibility too much to ask for anybody. It had nothing to do with anybody else's decision. I am going to say this quickly. There were people that believed that I left because Melanie left and it had nothing to do with that. It literally had nothing to do with Melanie leaving. I I explained to Melanie while she was still the active president, I should say, on the board, that I was considering leaving and, and stepping down. That was even prior to her making the decision to stand down from the presidency and the board. I really need to express that my decision was goodwilled. There was no ill will towards any one person or any group of people. I did it for the best interest of primarily of myself and my workplace and secondary for the board because I really believe that carrying people in an important position where you need to do the work and if you volunteer for it, regardless or not, you still have to be able to provide the service like you would a professional business. So when it really dawned on me that this COVID fuckery that's going on, everything else that was happening with my demand going up exponentially in my real job, I really looked at it, examined the whole profile and thought, this is just not going to work out. The problem is, is when you're in a split stream between things like that, you realize that not only do you become inefficient at one, but you come in inefficient at the other as well, because you're serving two masters, so to speak. And I really looked at that and I thought, I'm starting to see the cracks at both ends. Like there are times where I was staying up late for meetings or getting up early for meetings or whatever it would be. And people would say, oh, poor baby. But to be honest, I've got a lot riding on my shoulders right now. Even you and me, like you understand that you have to be largely flexible around my workplace at the moment because it's, it's changed exponentially to the early days of us being able to do this podcast. You know, I have to ask you to be more flexible to suit me, which gratefully you can do it. But that's some of the burden that comes with taking on the responsibility of a professional role in, in anything you're doing. And especially when it is your main professional role. So folks, there you go. There is nothing nefarious behind it. If you're wondering if there's things happening, the answer is, as I said before, there's always something happening, but people are certainly being part of the solution and the membership can do the same thing as well. If you think there's a problem, talk to your representative on the board. It's now no longer my business. What happens on, well, it is as a member It is my business to question things and so forth, but I do know that when I was serving on the board, we were actively working to try and resolve whatever problems that were coming our way. And let me just tell you that once you solve one problem, there's two more waiting for you. That happens in my my job, and I'm sure that happens for you, Pat, as well, in your job and your career and your family life. Yeah. I think something worth pointing out and for everyone to remember is, you know, those organizations representative of our industry, I suppose, being volunteer run, there's always a huge changeover of people. So, you know, I was on the legislative committee. I'm not anymore. I had a couple of months off where I wasn't on any committee and now I'm, back, I'm on a different one. I'm on the marketing committee. And when I was on that legislative committee, the personnel change over, right? And it really has a lot to do. There, there can be lots of reasons why people go. People could be frustrated and leave, whatever. That that That's always going to happen. But I think for the most part, it's a time commitment thing. And, you know, your contributions to your uh, you know, your volunteer time can't steal in a destructive manner from your work time, especially when it's a volunteer organization representative of your work. So there's no point in being a really effective, like volunteer and standing up an organization that represents your industry. Meanwhile, you're a failing person in the industry because you're too much time in that, in that space. So I think people understand that for the most part. I think as well, you know, we've been longtime supporters of the IACP. We've done everything we can to push a lot of people into it. And I continue to do that. I think that things change 
and sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And I think that the organization at the moment is in a bit of a restructure and I'm excited to see what happens going forward. And, and I think more than anything, now we need the IACP more than ever before. We need a professional organization. We need an organization that represents us as trainers who you know don't want to be restricted and who don't want to find ourselves in a position where we've cut off our nose to spite our face. You know, we've got through some minor win in legislation that then actually causes us huge problems down the line. And I still support the IACP. I still support the mission. I absolutely am going to be contributing however I can. But you know, the way that I can contribute at the moment is much more limited than I have in the past. And we rely on other people to come in who have the time, energy, capability to do this kind of thing. So get on board folks, like help drive that organization forward because we need it. We absolutely need a professional body. I still support it and think that the ISCP is the one for us. Currently, it's the only one. There's not a lot of options who support balanced trainers and the way that we're all thinking about, you know, the way that we'd like to train on the tools that we want to use and the support that we need behind an organization. You know, this is like the argument where people keep saying, you've got to look after this earth because there isn't another one. You can't just leap off it and go somewhere else once you drain all the resources. There's a good saying that's in business, it's in life as well. It's that's be part of the solution, not part of the problem. If yeah. if there is something that needs to change, then it needs to change. Businesses and any organization is basically like a snake. Once it outgrows what it, it's doing, it needs to shed its skin in order to keep growing, or it could be the lobster theory or whatever you want to talk about. But pressure happens and it needs to shed. That's going to happen continuously for any member committee board or directors or committee, subcommittees, et cetera. It's going to change. It's going to reflect new leadership. There's going to be a cycle of new people going in and old people leaving. Some people might reinvest in time there. That's always going to happen. The other thing that happens, I'm not going to make this a long-winded thing, but the other thing that does tend to happen as well, sometimes professional people, when they step into these things, boards and committees for nonprofit organizations, not always, but largely the ones that I've had anything to do with, they move a lot slower than the professional world where a professional world where you've got a director, a director will sit down and say, shoot me some ideas, go. And the panel will basically say, oh, we want to do this. And I'll say, okay, make it happen. Here's the money or you're not getting it. There's no budget to support that end of story or it's, it's on the back burner. Whereas a committee in a lot of these nonprofit organizations, it has to sit with people for a period of time. There's groups that will sit with ideas for a period of time and, you know, they might abstain from voting or whatever it is. It frustrates people who are used to the professional world. So if you're going to volunteer your time in a volunteer space, you have to understand that it's not going to move the way that you want it to move. And if you think it needs to change, then you need to be part of that new education to help the people reach that new level of education, how to understand how to do that in a helpful and mentoring aspect. And that will be beneficial long-term. Yeah, totally. You know, international organizations of any type are difficult, whether it's a business or a not-for-profit or, you know, professional body, anything, because in this world, we can do the Zoom, we can do this, like we feel very connected, but we're not really, right? Like, look at this now, like this, I hate doing a podcast this way, having to do it over Zoom with you. Mm. It's so much easier. It's so much better. And I think that we produce such a better product when we're face to face and we can't now because of all the bullshit that's going on and we're only 30 kilometers from each other. And we experience these difficulties trying to communicate. I think that when you get any sort of international organization that is used to being able to once, maybe twice a year, get the core, uh, you know, a big chunk of membership, but the organization, the body, the, the, the subcommittees can meet face to face and experience goodwill with each other. Uh, I think that's really, really necessary. And I think that the wheels are falling off a lot of things. You know, I have a lot of friends in business that are really struggling despite that you wouldn't realize that they deal so much internationally. You know, and I had a client of mine dealing in very, very big dollars. And he's like, he told me one day that this deal had to wait until he could travel. Uh, and I was like, yeah, there's nothing to, like the deal's done, right? And he said, no, no, no. Like we have to meet each other and we have to shake hands and we have to go out to dinner because, you know, they, they were talking millions and millions of dollars. And he goes, you can't do a deal like that over Zoom. Mm. Like it has, it has to be a face, some face-to-face. There has to be some FaceTime. There, even though there's no 
know, like the logistics is organized, the the specifics is done. We need some goodwill now. Like we actually need to see each other and meet each other and be together. And I think that's what's missing in so many things worldwide at the moment is that ability to be together and, and, and with an international organization with people all over the world that regularly, that, you know, formally holds a, a yearly conference that you get a big chunk of the membership at every year, not having done that in two years causes difficulties, man. And, and especially in that, that goodwill, like with seeing people and knowing like, Hey, we're on the same team. Like we, we support the same shit. We can, we can argue about stuff. We can disagree on things, but for the most part, for the, you know, the big ticket items, we're on the same team. And and I think that's what's missing. And, and when we can start to do that, Fuck knows when that's going to be, but when we can start to do that again, I think that a lot of the bumps that we're experiencing in business and, you know, in, in business relationships and everything, it's all going to settle out. It's all going to smooth out before too long. Well, who knows how long? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with everything that you just said then, because speaking from experience, I do know that being the the first and still the only current well, now non-current board member that was outside North America, it made it very difficult because of the COVID climate. And as you know, you and I, you know, we'd started to make pretty much a consistent pilgrimage to go over to the United States for, you know, I was over there, you were doing seminars, I was going over to do the face-to-faces and we were both going to the ICP conferences and so forth. There was quite an, an active interest in us as individuals and the canine paradigm and the ICP for us to be able to, make that migration across the ditch and be able to go over and partake in the goodwill, as you said. And that made it hard for me, even thinking about not being involved in the IACP face-to-faces, not being involved in seminars, which nobody got to go at last year. And that was literally looking like it could happen again this year. But, you know, the board actively going to meet each other. I think they're all going to go out to Florida and hang out at Dogs Playing for Life Centre and so forth. I'm, I think that's where they're going. But I can't be a part of that. I can't travel over there with them. So therefore, I'd have to dial in. And as you said before, that does make it difficult because they're all having that fellowship with each other. They're all sitting down to meals together. They're all spending time together. Whereas then I become the outlier to the group. And even though people know me, you know, like they look at me as you and I are looking at each other now, I still become the outlier. And Nobody treated me in a really hostile manner. That never happened. I don't want to make that a, you know, I don't want to start developing that narrative in people's mind. But in my mind, it makes it difficult. And just as I said before, in the pressures of of the job and the commitment that I need to upkeep now, it's hard to get up in the middle of the night, have these meetings and then be fully functional the next day. And again, you know, it probably looks like we won't be able to go over to the conference this year. We may be, there might be a, like a complete change. Omicron might burn everything out and literally restart the whole dynamic of what's happening with this problem that we're having. But at this point in time, who knows? However, enough about this. This is actually probably a good lead into something that we did want to talk about as our subject matter for this episode. And that was seminar etiquette. Dogs at seminars. Yeah. Dog, yeah. Well, dogs at seminars. That's yeah. what I wanted to talk about. You know, I finally set a date for the the Sydney seminar. It's in May. It's it, There's no tickets available yet because they're all sold. It was, you know, it was one that had to be cancelled because of COVID. Uh, we're in lockdown. And when I emailed everybody setting out the new date, people who had asked for working spots, I said, you know, like who's going to want a working spot still? And I've been getting these emails about it. And it's been interesting to me because I choose the working spots at my seminars. It's not just 10 random dogs, right? And I used to do that. And the reason I don't anymore is because I had 10 of the same dog. I did an event and, you know, it's like 10 working spots. And, you know, it's in the days where, you know, the first 10 people can just, whoever pay, who wants to do it, whoever wants to pay more and whoever gets in first gets the working spots. And for me, those seminars that I teach or boot camps or whatever it is, anything that I'm an instructor at, For me, I'm very much focused on the education piece and my nightmare came true once when I had 10 of basically the same problem with this, with the dogs. And so I was like a one trick monkey that I had spoken for a day and go through this full gamut of different things that you can do. And then did one of those things because it was the same problem with all these dogs. And that was the day I thought, you know, you know what? And, And I could see people in the crowd that day that were kind of pissed, right? Because they were like, I'm seeing the same thing over and over. And I was pissed about having to do that, but I had to serve the the people that were there. They paid extra to get there. So what I did, and it was, you know, on advice from Bart actually was that 
I change the way that it goes and that the host can choose who, what dogs come often. And because this one in Sydney, I'm the host, I'll be choosing. So I want a variety of dogs. I want a mismatch of dogs. I want to be able to do a bunch of stuff. And what I don't want is the same problem or the people that are working towards the exact same goal and are at the exact same point. I want a big variety of dogs. And I also have since then many years ago, insisted that people all pay the same amount. So I don't let people pay extra for working spots, which is typical within the industry, right? For me, they're all audit spots and they're all working spots. It's all the same. And we allocate like 10 of those people who want it, people ask, and 10 people roughly get told, yes, please bring your dog. But because it's a dog event, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a minute, people bring their dogs anyway. Right. And, and I've been that I've had to do that, you know, because people have multiple dogs in their care. Maybe the seminar is away from their home. And so the dogs have to come with them. There's always more dogs at, at events. And one of the things that, you know, I don't want to be handcuffed to do is not work a dog when I think that it would provide the best form of education for the people who are at the event. And so I want to be able to have the freedom to say, no, even though this person didn't organize a working spot, I've seen them with their dog in the car park and there's there's a lesson to be learned there, or they've asked me for advice and the dog is there, or you know, I have a technique that I want to teach all these people at this event and that dog is primed and ready to go for it. And I want that freedom of action to be able to pull that person out of the crowd and say, yep, let's work your dog without upsetting and offending the people who paid extra. So as a result, I don't allow anyone to pay extra. Everybody pays the same amount. And what that also gives me the freedom of action to do is train the dog appropriately. Because I think that sometimes, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Glenn, as well, because there's a lot of pressure when you're the person that people have come to see teach dog training. There's a lot of pressure when you are training a dog in front of a crowd to get some sort of remarkable results, right? Everybody wants to make a big difference. They want to put on a show. They want like a big noticeable change to happen right there and then. And I think very often with dog training, that's not good for the dog. I think that's very often like not what's needed because, you know, slow and steady progression is usually the way to go in training. And those big course corrections, those radical changes that can alter a dog's behavior right there and then, they very seldom last and they can very often lay booby traps that will expose themselves further down the line. And, we, and, and that can talk, you know, that can work by using punishment in front of people that can work by using different types of high arousal reinforcement you can get those same results. And so I'd never want to have the cuffs on myself to be like, I brought my dog, you trained that other dog for an hour. So I've got a working spot. I've paid extra. You have to train my dog for an hour when it might be that they've got a nervous reactive dog or whatever. And just the, the two to three minutes in front of the crowd and, and having that level of experience is actually what that dog needs to, to finish on that win and then put the dog away. So you can never be fair. Like you, well, you can be fair in that every dog should get what is best for it. But that doesn't always look fair to onlookers who will see different amounts of work and different levels of commitment from different dogs and, you know, different time spent essentially on different dogs at events. Mm. Yeah. There's a couple of things in there. I think I need to have a little bit of backwards and forwards on. First thing is your choice to not charge people for the extra working spots. Well, I think that's a, a very generous thing for you to offer I also have had discussion with people on this after they've heard that you do that and they've heard us talking about this on the podcast before. And some people have said, I think that's nice that Pat wants to do that. I agree with it. And I know that some people have followed suit. But when I want to do something similar, having somebody that's actually doing a dog spot means that I've actually got to do some research on their dog. Like I've got to spend time that I wouldn't have to spend with an auditor sitting there doing the paperwork, considering my actions and what I've got to do. So I've got to work extra for that person stepping up at my seminar. And they said, and even though I'm providing that service, even though that's part of what the, you know, like I need dogs to attend to do this. So I'm appreciative that people want to do that. I'm still providing an on the spot consultation for that person. So there's two sides to look at it. One, you can be, as you said, you can say it's an act of generosity or, but I also, I do support the other process where I do believe that you do have to spend time and you might say, well, that's arbitrary because it's not much, but it depends on the person and depends what they're doing. Before you answer, I know I can see you poised for an answer, but before you do that, another part of that reason is I watch Narelle when she does consults with people and when she does a consult, she'll get people that will 
ask a few questions, a few follow-up questions after the consult. So they'll contact her on email or social media and say, hey, Narelle, what's your thoughts on this? And largely she follows up on it gratis. You know, it's part of the service. Yep, Mm -hmm. do this, do that. That's a good idea. I like where you're thinking. Whereas there's other people that will really start monopolizing her time, like send her very, very big detailed emails and expect that to be gratis as well. There's times where she's looked at me and said, what should I do? And I said, you need to contact the person and politely say, look, this is going to be another consult because of the yeah. the level of work and it's part of a professional service. Like you still have to put yourself on a time clock and say to yourself, if I have to read this in my own time, which is defeating the purpose of what I'm doing in my professional time to sit there and do this gratis, you'll start not making money because then people will start saying, oh, this is part of the service. It's part of the, the free follow-up where you've got to define what the rules are and what you're prepared to do and what you're not prepared to do. I'm fine with you saying that you don't want to do it. It's no slight, you know, it's no dig at you to want to do it. I think that's kind. I think it's generous and it's part of a service that you want to provide, but I don't think it should be a shame to anybody else who doesn't want to do that as well. I don't think anybody who wants to charge for the working spots should think, oh, listen to these guys, you know, just trying to say that. No, no, totally. And and what I would say is it's not a kindness to the people. That's not why I do it. That is absolutely not. In fact, it's selfish from my, from my end. And that's what I want to sort of lead into in that I don't want to get stuck working someone's dog that I don't want to work. Yep. That's one of the main reasons why I do it because I have, you know, it, it is, it's not that I'm like, Hey, I just don't want to charge people more. What it is, is that I don't want to be like on the hook to somebody to provide them something that they think can be provided and can't, or that I don't want to provide. So, because like, it's not uncommon that I'll have people turn up with the work, like a working spot at an event and they bring out their dog and they say like, I want to do bite work with this dog. And I say, no, like, absolutely not. That's not happening for, for a multitude of reasons. That's happened many, many times where I explain to people like, Hey, you know, you know, and I, I always find a way to make it an educating moment where I can say to the people, like, these are the reasons why. And and it might be because this dog's unstable. He shouldn't be taught that kind of stuff. He should actually be calmed down, not brought up in arousal. Or I might explain that because the the in order to get proper biting from this dog, the 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 way to do it is it's only gonna get it's gonna have to be in defense because that's not the type of dog. He has no prey, he doesn't have the right kind of it. And I'm not the guy to do that. Like so I can explain to you, I can tell you how it could go and I know the process, but for me, I'm not prepared to do that with your dog here because you know your Kelpie I don't think should be doing that, right? Like and, and that's happened multiple times. And for me, I have the out and I feel completely morally clear because I haven't taken any extra money off them to, to have that happen. And so that's why I do it. It's absolutely not like some altruistic thing for the people. It's very selfish motivations in myself in that I don't want to get stuck having to put on show for things that I don't want to do. I think where I wanted to sort of lead with this is, you know, for people who do those kind of things. And I think most dog trainers know how to make a dog look one way that it isn't right. Like, and there's so many different tricks that you can do, especially that you learn, like when you buy and sell dogs, you know, and if you spend any time with the dog brokers that do that professionally, you can learn so many tricks about how to make a dog look like it's something that it isn't. And I think one of the big concerns that I see, the reason this, this whole topic came up was that when I was asking to go back to the seminar that I'm doing in Sydney, People are offering their dogs and saying, I want to work on this. I want to work on this. And you know, a big majority of the type of people that want to have their dog come to seminars, have working spots, are people with like nervous, aggressive, reactive dogs, right? I'm happy to have like one or two of those of the 10 be there. I don't want all 10 dogs to be that way because it, we're really limited in what we can do. And there's multiple reasons. The first is that I don't want to do the same thing over and over. That's why I don't run like aggressive dog only seminars, right? Like I don't do that because I don't think that that is the best place to address those kind of issues. You know, <laughs> like when people are like, oh yeah, he's, he's sketchy around people, doesn't like new environments and like, okay, we'll bring him into this new environment with 80 people, right? Like that mm. just seems foolish to me. So there's, there's that issue of like not wanting to have a whole bunch of those dogs there, but also that I don't think that it's the best environment to do that. And I think that there is very often a pressure 
for the people out in front to produce. Like you got to show something. People want to be entertained because I think that's one of the things that I definitely acknowledge about dog training seminars is that they are in large part infotainment, right? You have to be able to hold people's attention and entertain them for the full weekend or whatever you're doing, as well as give them education. Because, you know, we've been to a mate, like how many times have you been to events where someone gets the light pro going and reads off it and the information is stellar. Like it, it is technically excellent, but it's boring as shit. And it's hard to sit through those events, right? And it's really hard to take on all that information when the delivery of it isn't entertaining. So I try and be entertaining and I try to uh, deliver good information, but I can't do that without the broad spectrum of dogs there to give that education, right? Like I need to be able to bounce around and say like, okay, who's got a a nice stable dog that knows, like one of the classics I always say, who's got a dog that can do a hold kind of okay, right? Because I don't want to show the very, like I can use any dog to show the very first steps of a hold. That's easy. But where the dog is like, you know, just kind of grab something. And now we're going to learn to prolong that. We're going to teach the dog to, you know, duration in that, that behavior. That's kind of tricky. Right. And that's one of the things I like to, to show. And I need a dog that who's at that level to be there. And when people are just like, no, all we have here is a bunch of nervous reactive dogs that you can't get within two meters of. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, then I, I'm really limited in what I can teach you guys here. The other thing is as well, and, and this is certainly something that I've seen at a bunch of seminars, and we might have talked about it on the show before, is even when there is, you know, the dogs, say it's a sport seminar and there's no issues with any of the dogs when we're going forward, people want to see results, right? And it can be really, this is where I was going with the dog broker thing, it can be really tempting to show some big improvement that I know how to make it look like the dog has, right? Like I know how to make a dog look like something that it isn't for a few minutes, right? And very often doing that can lay a significant booby trap that the person is going to have to deal with later on. And I have kind of no interest in doing that because that comes at the cost of the integrity of the dog's training. So yeah, I can put on a show. I can put on a really good entertaining and informative show of dog training and make a dog go from one thing to another. But that's not always the right thing to do for the dog because I may be laying a booby trap that the handler doesn't know. And maybe only a few people in the crowd can tell that that's what's going to happen. Like I can tell when I see other people do it, that that it's going to cause a problem later on. But I get really nervous and uncomfortable about even the prospect of doing that because while I want to use the dogs for education purposes of the people that's there, it also can't come at the cost of their integrity of the training that they're going to do. Like I don't want to set a dog back just to demonstrate things to people once again that you've just said a a string of things that there's multiple answers to i think or multiple multiple points to in the first bracket where you were talking about the problem with seminars and people expecting results it just had me thinking back to when i was a kid and the lack of ethics that were in used cars back then and i'm talking quite a while ago now and i remember this for myself and one of my mates dads had this old trick that when you went to look at a used car you'd take a a reasonable magnet in a bit of cloth like a bit of you know scratchery cloth and you'd go around the car and you'd put the magnet in certain areas because back in the day secondhand cars that young kids like me could afford they were often bogged up and then they found somewhere would just put a quick coat of paint on it and make an old car look all brand new again so you'd often go around and you'd check it out and you'd find out that what you're looking at isn't what it actually is like it's like an old saying i guess that all that glitters isn't gold so i sometimes think in seminars i've seen people who are very ethical people and, and been stuck in this whole problem before, as you've said before, where they're trying to get results because that's what they think is part of the entertainment of the system. But I think totally. I think the best thing for everybody, and it should be a be it known sort of caption, is that when you're going to a seminar, the only thing that can happen there is incremental change. And the best thing that can happen in a seminar is shift of perspective. And I think if you go there with that in mind, I think you'll be very pleased and you'll feel satisfied with what you got. I think if you're going there and you think you're going to change everything you're doing and you're going to see, you know, like a, a complete breakdown of a dog and a reshift in dynamic of where the dog's going from there, you're going to be sorely disappointed because this is like everything that you're taking up. And you can talk about any hobby that you want to take up or anything. And I mean, I've certainly made mention of those in earlier episodes. You can't stand at the base of a ladder and jump to the top of it. You just can't do it. And that won't happen at a seminar. 
you will get light bulb moments. You will see things that will challenge you and will make you think outside the square, hopefully. And that's some of the best things that have happened for me in seminars. One thing that you stated before, Pat, which I think is absolutely right, you'll go there and you'll hear people primarily and almost verbatim talking about learning theory. They might use a couple of different words and a couple of little bit of different dynamic in the way that they present it. Some people might use, you know, some visual stimuli with some PowerPoints or some video that they've prepared and so forth, which is great. Whatever works in order for the student to get the best amount of uptake, I commend the host for being able to do that. I think that's an art form in itself from a a mentor to their students to be able to produce good work is Find what helps the majority of the crowd able to uptake the information. And you're right, it is entertainment sometimes. It does help if people like the host and they have some sort of entertaining quality about them. Because if the seminar is dry, and I've been to seminars before that are very dry, um, and I've even run seminars before, which people have said to me that was very dry. And I've had to learn on the fly what people like and what they don't like. And sometimes I think to myself, well, I don't want to be a, a dancing bear myself. You know, like I don't want to do all those sort of things. But in order to get through to students, you have to. You have to to be entertaining. It takes me back to earlier ways that I used to teach NDTF. Some people used to say I was too dry because I was being too serious because I thought to myself, this is the way to teach people is to make it all very serious. But I found that as I lightened up and as I told stories and as we, you know, joked around a bit in class and and still got all the content available, the standard in the class went up. Students found that it was better, that they were able to invest more in the knowledge because I was more relatable with them. I wasn't sort of standing afar from them and saying, no, you've got to do this and we can't be friends and there's no fun in class and so forth. That itself is a skill set that the host needs to develop and needs to understand is what is it that you're really trying to sell at the end of the day? What is it that you're really trying to do at the end of the day? And if you think to yourself, like the example I used with Narelle before, if you think to yourself that you've got to try and provide this outrageous amount of information to people and you've got to achieve these outrageous results, you'll make life very miserable for yourself. Not only will you make it miserable for yourself, but people will scratch their head in and be confused at your seminars because I think I made a, an example of this with one of the restaurants that we used to go to. It's an Italian restaurant. And I can't remember the name of it for the uh, Crenides. Loved their food, but their menu was so extensive. Like it was almost like opening a book up and it was far too confusing. So I think they had a great idea. And, you know, it's not a slag against Crenides. I love them. I love their, their, their food and, you know, used to go and eat there often. But I just found the menu overwhelming sometimes. And even people that we took there that were visiting or guests or, or family that came to stay with us, they'd say, geez, this menu, it's so big. So sometimes people will look at, and, and if, if the, it's, it's kind of like finding that Goldilocks momentum that if it's too little, you look at it and go, oh, it's the same food all the time, or it's too big, you get angry. And you've got to try and be skilled enough to try and find just the right amount of information, just the right mm-hmm. amount of entertainment. I know that you've been working very hard on that. I've seen other people, and I think, you know, Bart's advice and mentoring to you about that type of thing as well is to how long a, a seminar should go for and what you should work on and the structure and and so on and so on. There is a real science to it. Yeah. But on the other side of what you were talking about before, there's also the consideration of who's coming, their expectations, their behavior, the questions that they're going to ask you. Because I've been to a lot of seminars before, we just know that there's going to be somebody in the crowd who's going to ask those questions. And those uh-huh. questions are the ones that you go, oh, and you can almost hear everybody exhale at the same time, like oh, grab half an hour because this is how long it's going to take A, to ask the question, and then it's going to need uh, some form of intelligent rebuttal so you don't sound like you're a complete ass and don't know the answer to it. So yeah. unfortunately, there are people like that. I think I've been that person at a seminar before where I've, you know, like somebody's come along and it's not that I wanted to challenge them. I guess that I wanted to appear intelligent and I was enthusiastic about what they were saying, but sometimes I know the answer and I just don't need anybody to validate it for me. Sometimes yeah, you yeah. just sometimes you just need, you, like there have been times where I've gone to a seminar and I thought, I already know the answer to this. I don't need to ask it. And if so, I could even have a chat in the break to the 
the host. So him and him and I or her and I can have a little bit of um, backwards and forwards on it and not appear that, you know, I'm some know-it-all or I pulled this out of a book. But some people are like that at seminars. They can't contain themselves and they want to ask that question. Or some people are completely, <laughs> what would I say, they're not clued in to the fact that they're that person sometimes. And then they will go into this long-winded my dog story, which really has no end to it. And it doesn't really have a conclusion. And it's you kind of get to the end of it and you're thinking, I don't know how to answer this without creating a problem for both me and the person who asked the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly sometimes you get people at education events that don't generalize information very well. So you might explain something generally, but because you didn't give their exact problem. So they might have an issue with a dog going into its crate and you've talked about how to get a dog into its kennel and they're like, nope, that's a different thing. I need to ask you specifically about my dog. And it's like, no, like we're here to learn process, not specifics. And and when you get too caught up in the specifics of your dog, then that's really only good for that dog and that exact situation. Whereas if you understand the whole mechanics of the whole thing, then you can apply that template to your dog and you can apply that to the next one and any other dog that you will encounter along the way. I think one of the really tricky things about teaching events and and especially with a mix of dogs that are going to be there is, you know, people like us say like at an event that I would teach, I'll have people from police and military working dog handlers, sport competitors, professional dog trainers, all the way down to people who have a reactive dog and found the podcast by Googling dog training, right? And and are there for there. So you get this full spectrum of people at at some events. Now some some are tailored, right? And it's like, no, we're just doing this. Those are ones I, I very much enjoy. But when it's a broad event, I still love doing those, but it can be really tricky to know how to deliver your content because you're catering to a really broad audience. And and that's one of the tricky parts. Like when you're doing private lessons, you're talking to that person and and they have a a knowledge base that you can sort of begin to ascertain. You can ask so, you know, when you're teaching uh, to a, an audience of people, and it doesn't matter whether that's two people or a hundred people, it doesn't matter. Now there's some variance in there and you're going to have different jumping off points. People are going to need, you know, more back information than other people. And other people are going to want you to get into more of the advanced topics and not spend so long in the basics and that kind of stuff. So it can be really tricky to know what to do. But that's why, you know, it's one of the reasons I love doing it is I find telling the, like teaching through storytelling, especially in dog training, exceptionally helpful. Where you talk about like a real life problem that a dog had, and then you can teach it that way. And then hopefully you can replicate that with a dog that's there and you can go, you know, you've heard the theory of how it goes down. You've seen the story of how it works. Now let's try and replicate that. Let's do it live on a, on a dog that's here. And that's why I like a big, a broad mix of dogs. Have you seen the show Young Sheldon, which is a takeoff Uh, of- yeah, I haven't watched it religiously, but I've seen bits and pieces of it. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's just, it's fucking hilarious. It's Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory. It's based on his character. So Jim Parsons, who's the voice of Sheldon Cooper, who does some of the narrating, but they've got this brilliant kid in there who plays young Sheldon, who is just this brilliant mind. And he understands from a very young age that he wants to be a physicist and, you know, work in the concepts of string theory, et cetera, et cetera. And, it's fun to watch him interact with the class and some of the the people he's with. And you just see like the pain in the eyes of all the faculty, like thinking, oh my God, is he going to be in my class today? And then when they find out that he skipped school for some reason, you can just see them all. It's like the highlight of their day that Sheldon's not going to be there. <laughs> One thing that is a plague for both a host and a group that are attending a seminar is that if the conversation starts to degrade between you and somebody else that are talking way above the tempo of the rest of the class, you can. that's a problem for you as a host. If you're watching everybody fade away and starting to mingle into circles and talk amongst themselves, you've lost your group. That itself is an issue for you. And again, you know, I've had people say, well, I attended the seminar. I paid money myself. I have the right to reserve to ask that question. But at the expense of losing everybody else where that question would probably be better after hours or it might be better at some other time or part of a private lesson because sometimes that will completely void or invalidate the rest of the day for everybody else. That one person will be satisfied with what they got may be satisfied or that may turn into a challenge between the host and the person who asked it because 
they may be more well-informed than the host of the seminar, but this is why I'm, I'm saying this is an etiquette thing because I have seen this before and I literally have got up and walked out of a – it was a very long time ago, but I've walked out of a, a seminar before because it got to a debate between two people and everybody else was excluded in the discussion. And I just thought, I really didn't pay for this, and now it's got to a point. It was on day two. People were tired. It was really testing people's mental capacity, and I just thought – there's nothing here that anybody else is going to benefit. And it's just a, you know, it's a tale between two people. So it's a hard thing. It's a tricky thing to be involved in, but kind of this is a plea to people that are attending seminars as well. Is you still need to have etiquette to say, yes, I deserve to answer the question, but how long should this extend for? And at, and at what cost to everybody else? Like there still is consideration for other people sometimes to think, well, you know, nobody's getting anything from this except the two of you because I've had people that I've said, Hey, that was pretty, that was a pretty layered question that went in and they said, yeah, but everybody would have benefited from it. And I said, the problem was, I don't think they did. I think that people mm. lost the discussion probably five minutes into a 45 minute discussion. And it pretty much monopolized a lot of time where that could have been set. Because again, we're looking for in a seminar where there's an extensive amount of people that are turning up, you hope, this needs to be a Goldilocks principle where you're trying to find the just right where it can it, it can keep everybody entertained, I guess, is or even yeah. even have, you know, like a, a flow of education where it will benefit the entire group rather than one or two people at the top extreme. Yeah, totally. I agree. And I think that that's the role of the the presenter to manage that. And that's one of the skill sets that you require to do that kind of thing and do it well is being able to feather that information and say, you know, like, here's the, here's the broad brush. Here's this, you know, but then before we get too into the specifics, that's only relevant to this one person, we spend 45 minutes on it. We then say, Hey, you know, this will become apparent to you later. You'll see what I mean. If not, we talk about it after hours and we, we can, we got to keep this moving. And that's one of the, you know, that's one of the reasons sort of like I have a, not a strict timesheet, but I, you know, I have like a tempo that needs to be met and you can't allow anything to derail you from that tempo because then, you know, you won't be able to cover all the information and you lose the crowd and that kind of stuff. The other thing I wanted to talk about in regards to seminars was because this is what came up when, uh, you know, asking for working spots is, you know, with the nervous, reactive, aggressive dogs, all that kind of stuff. Like you can, I'd like to have one or two at an event so that we can, so I can show people the way that I would work on that kind of thing. But what I don't ever plan to do, and I know people do this, but it's just not for me. And, I, and I'll explain for two reasons. Those big events full of fucking dogs going crazy, right? Because we see those, you see those online. And most people who are industry people or trainers themselves can look at that and go, holy fuck, that is just a disaster, right? So there's like 10 people all out, all with aggressive dogs that are losing their minds you know, at various triggers. And it's just a the shit show. And more often than not, when we see those events, especially when they're referred to as successes is they're just being done very heavy handedly and the dogs are just being shut down. So of course, like I can show results, like a dog comes out, he's barking at other dogs and, you know, through such excessive pressure, whether, you know, whatever form it comes in, uh, I can stop that dog from doing that there and there. And there in that environment, in that context, while he's on the leash, he stops blowing up and he's no longer so obviously aggressive. And that can put on a good show. And to people who don't know what they're watching, that can look like you've had some really good success. But, you know, there's two reasons for it. Like, first of all, it's not good for the dogs. Absolutely not good for the dog. Because more often than not, those people that train that way, especially if they're, say, dog aggressive dogs and what we're all, all we're doing is shutting them down, is we're shutting down the bark, lunge, growl, but not the bite. And that kind of training very often creates the silent killers that we then, you know, later encounter when we're out walking down the street and the dog knows he can't bark, lunge, growl at other dogs, but we never actually punish biting. And so he waits until they're in striking range and then nails them. So it's not good for the dogs, but I think it gives a really false expectation to the people that are there, right? So I think that the people who have those dogs, they think that the dog has become something that it's not really. And that's the kind of training that I just can't get behind. I just can't be a part of it. And I even struggle a little bit doing aggressive dog stuff with that second part in mind where we talk about giving that false expectation. And one of the, you know, an example that 
happened to me early on, it was many, many years ago, was I had a guy get badly bitten in the car park by his own dog because he had a, a very aggressive dog, a shepherd that was really aggressive, but it was very possessive and his handling wasn't great. And he was doing like a sort of a two ball kind of technique with it. Anyway, long story short, I said, oh, you know, like that aggression comes from, he thinks you're trying to steal his item. You got to be more cooperative with it and showed him the technique for doing it. But what I didn't effectively convey was the mindset behind why to do it and the posturing, like the technique he understood, but what he was conveying to the dog, he didn't. And the dog just bit the fuck out of him in the car park when he tried to replicate exactly what I had shown him. And so I, that's my fault. Like I had, I stitched him up on that because I'd shown him like the wrong part of it. And that's why I worry about with aggressive dogs. And, and especially when you handle someone else's dog in that sort of circumstance, you can do it. Your ego can like, it's what happened to me. I was like, Oh, I know how to make this look great. I know how to do this. And if this were my dog, this is exactly what I do. It's not like I did it specifically for the crowd, but what I really, really should have done is talked him through how to do it rather than doing so much of it myself because he didn't, he missed big chunks of what was necessary. And they were like critical components that were specific to him to understand and watching me do it. He understood the technique, but not the mentality behind it. And had I made him do more of it, I would have picked that up and, you know, intervened earlier before his dog decided to intervene in the car park when he did it incorrectly. So that's why I worry about those kinds of things. I think that they're very, very tricky. And that's why at an event that I teach, I'm happy to have one or two. That's fine. But I don't want 10. Uh, that's not the, and, and I can't, I can't effectively train those dogs. I can't effectively convey all the information that I want to. And I can't effectively give the best to the dog and the handler in that moment, as well as the people who are watching. Oh, that's my rant about it. Hmm. Yeah, I understand your take on it. I still think that in regards to the aggressive, problematic dogs, I still think that they have a place that they need to attend and people need to be better informed about that. But I do agree with you that you need to extend a lot of caution when you're doing it and you do need to field the type of dogs that are turning up and what the technique is that you're going to do. I've seen it done brilliantly before by people and I've seen it done really badly before. And as you've said, I've, the main area where I've seen people doing it really badly is where it's very, the host is very poorly informed. They're very inadequate in their preparation of that because their way of resolving the issue is, as you said before, is, is literally hanging the dog or being extremely punitive. punitive. Yeah, punitive. That's the word I was searching for. Yeah, they're very punitive in their approach to it and it doesn't really resolve anything with the owner one of the things that you can do is you can give the owner hope. Like you can, you can literally tell them, yes, there is hope for this dog or you've got a bigger problem than what we, what we considered. That's a difficult thing for anybody to come to a group seminar and have that explained to them while they're standing in front of a group of 60 odd people. And you're explaining to them that the problem is far worse than what they imagined. When we were talking earlier on before, when we were talking about working spots, especially for things like when you are working with aggressive seminars and you've got dogs, there does need to be a fair bit of research that goes into it. There does need to be a lot of backwards and forwards when you're speaking with people and saying, if this dog turns up out of 10, and let's be realistic here, out of 10, how is the dog going to behave in front of another dog? How is the dog going to behave with me? How is the dog going to behave in a room full of people, because these are extensive questions that need to be asked. You do need to do a bit of a dossier on what the handling is and what the character or the behavior of the dog is going to be. The other thing that you also absolutely need to do is you don't give people false hope. You don't tell them this is going to cure the dog. This is primarily yeah. to show them that there, that there may exist a technique that will be able to prevent the dog from, or from thinking the way it's thinking and change perspective of the dog. In situations that I've done when I've been working with aggressive dogs, it doesn't always go your way. Like no seminar goes entirely your way. Primarily everybody that I've been to see, some things go really, really well. Some of the practical and theoretical discussions and principles that they're talking about are really great whereas other ones, they're mediocre. And that's going to happen at, at seminars when you're live on display. That's just the way things are. I do think that in the preparation and the understanding and the discussion and even having a better understanding of the capability of the person that is coming up to present their problem to you, that's why I think that a lot of research needs to go into that. Because as Mr. Mayagi says, ambition without knowledge is like a boat on dry land. 
Oh, look at you, Yagi, quoting him all over the place. Well, I've been watching Cobra Kai lately and, <laughs> and I rewatched The Karate Kid. The philosophies of, of good mentors is beneficial. We've promoted that extensively throughout all the episodes we do. We, we promote that as individuals and collective from our own business point of views and, and philosophies that we share and philosophies that we share in the communities as well. I think these things are exponentially important because they really underpin the fabric of what we're trying to present and what we're trying to sell to people in the community as well. Yes, there's people out there who do a terrible job of explaining fear and aggression. They don't have enough understanding about themselves. They're literally the epitome of a person who did a, a very short course in dog training and automatically was aroused by the fact that fear and aggression is out there. And it's like that movie Dangerous Creatures with John Cleese where he's the zookeeper trying to get people interested in a zoo. You know, like danger attracts people and sometimes with dog training in in the fear and aggression realm that seems to attract people to it it has this aura that draws people in because it's dangerous even though some people they say externally that they're not attracted to danger internally they're very curious about it so Mm -hmm. on that concept itself you do need to extend caution to people. They do need to understand that, um, you know, and as I've said to you before, and we've talked about live on these shows, I've done um, seminars before where nothing happened. The dogs yeah. came in and and primarily it was an exercise on teaching the dog the enjoyment of focusing on them rather than the other dogs in the room. Like there was no big explosions. There wasn't a big Yahoo. And that's what I said to people. I said, if we're successful today, this is what we're going to get. We're going to get a transformation. However, The caveat to this is that there was no cure that happened today. All we did was we showed the owner a perspective of what they can do and how they can change their stars from here on in. But what they do need to take on from here is they do need to find a mentor in their area, whether it's me or you or somebody else in their area that can successfully take them on and can see this through to fruition. Because this, again, when I said before, you can't stand at the base of a ladder and jump to the top of it. You have to climb each rung, especially in things like we're talking about the seriousness of fear and aggression. Sometimes the the content, you, you know, like we've told, we've said before, you can't punish away emotions. We have to painstakingly work over an incremental period of time. And that time is linear depending on the, the subject on how they're best prepared to undertake the new training or the coaching or even the new classical aspect of how you're going to try and change their mind and shift their perspective on how they're feeling at the time. And that's a difficult thing. That's a really difficult thing to do. And I've shared it multiple times throughout my career of learning about this is that I did think that you could make it punitive. I did think that you could just punish it away. That was the, the very underskilled and uneducated petition of my experience in dog training is that's what I thought you could do. The older I've gotten and the more wise I've become and the more learned I've become thanks to other people's edu- educating me on the principle, I've realized that it's far more difficult than what you believe it is to be. But getting back to the seminar and the etiquette of running seminars and so forth, I think if you're transparent as you can possibly be, and you make it clear to the attendees and the people that are coming along with their dogs that are very brave to step up on the stage with you, there needs to be form a discussion on what's actually going to happen. And it also needs to be known, don't come there expecting these enormous transformations to happen. Come there with the understanding that you could shift perspective. That's one of the dynamics that I really try and encourage students to understand is unless you're invested in the long game of it, if you're doing the short processes, this is just about giving you the tapas of it, understanding Mm -hmm. that there is a greater menu at hand there that you could look at it and say, I've tried this and I like it. And it is something that I can now explore in a different dynamic in a different direction. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And, And like, I should clarify that I'm absolutely not saying that those kind of events shouldn't happen, the aggressive dog events and that kind of stuff. It's just I'm explaining why I don't do them. Yeah, right? I, and I think I get that. bodies will get aligned to different things, and that's why I don't do them. For sure, there are people that do it great. And and I'm kind of pissed. One of the reasons, I, I, again, to talk about being pissed, not being out of travel, is I'd love to go and see those events that like uh, Larry, Jay, and Joel Silverman do, where they do a lot of those kind of things. And those are guys that know how to work with a dog and change the state of mind of a dog and get like good results on the spot mm. and you know, follow up with people and keep that progressing and, and, you know, really actually change dogs 
in that type of environment. But like I say, it's just not for me. I don't want to focus on that kind of stuff. I'm more of a train the dog to do things guy and the techniques that I know they work on that kind of stuff. And I'm happy to teach them and have, you know, an element of that as part of my teaching, but I can't make it the whole thing. Mm. And I think, like I say, that is where the most of the demand comes from. Because I see it when people apply for working spots, more than two thirds of the people uh, have big issues with their dog and, and want to work on it. And, and like I say, to wrap up what my feelings on it is very often, the type of events that I teach are not best suited to fixing those big issues. What they are best suited to is giving you the skill set and the knowledge to then go out and, and implement those things later on. In a nutshell, the seminar is a tapas, as I said before, and what you do from there on in is dependent on you on how far you want to take this. So if you want to invest, you and other trainers have got extensive online courses or even the opportunity to do one-on-ones and so forth. If you haven't got it already, if you're listening to this and don't understand, that's really where you need to take this. In order for you to to get your degree in anything like a diploma, you don't do a a weekend seminar and then you just get walk out with a diploma. Like a diploma is ongoing education. It's turning up to lectures. It's reading. It's think tanking with like-minded people and peers on how you're going to get the extensiveness of what industry you're trying to get involved in. You have to think of exactly the same thing in dog training as well. Nobody I know has completely changed their stars by attending a seminar. They've got an idea from attending a seminar. They've seen what's possible by attending a seminar. It's motivated them by attending a seminar. All those things are wonderful, but it won't completely transform you. This is me absolutely saying to people, you should go to seminars. I've always been an advocate ever since I've been, we've been running this podcast and long before that, if there's somebody of interest in order to find out what's on offer for them, If you haven't done an online session with them before, perhaps go and see them live in a seminar. Maybe it's just a a thing where you like the person and you just want to support them and hang out with them. And then you come away with it and think, holy shit, they just gave me a light bulb moment in the seminar that I didn't think I would get, but it was a benefit of going along to see somebody that I support anyway. This is not all on the attendees, on the etiquette of how they should respond and behave. This is the etiquette overall of how a, a seminar can go. And some of the best things that people can do that attending seminars for anybody that's going is provide constructive feedback. Let the person totally. let the person know that you're a participant of their seminar, what you liked and what they thought could do better. It's not to say that they're going to look at it and go, yep, I'm going to completely transform my whole seminar, but they might take it on board to say, there's enough people that have said that to me before where that's a great suggestion and I think it's time that I change that in the presentation itself. Yep, I agree. Oh, all right. What do you reckon? Wrap it up. That's a good place to wrap it up. Well, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Just tell a friend in real life. Like I've said before, just pull your ear pod out of your ear and jam it in someone else's ear and be like, hey, you got to listen to this. Don't worry. You can't catch COVID through the ears. Or look over the toilet stall as that meme I put up where everybody (laughs) thought it was Pat. (laughs) It actually did look like that. It did a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. Jump in there. A few bucks a month gets you access to a big backlog of content, live stream once a month. Lots of stuff goes down in there. The other way you can support the show is to jump into Teespring, get yourself some cool merch, socks, underpants, T-shirts, wall tapestries, you name it. It's all in there. Cool story. Uh, show me your dog. Yes. That's uh, that's in there now. Black only, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's uh, black. white on black. Yep. And if you want to get in contact with us, best way is to jump into the Facebook discussion group. That is the Canine Paradigm discussion group. You can group source information. There's lots of helpful people that are constantly giving good advice, which we appreciate very, very much. Or if you want to get in contact with us directly, you can shoot us an email. We are info at the Goodbye. <laughs>